Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where do I belong? Who are my people? All of us, in some way or another, have asked these questions at some point in our lives. These are some profound questions that delve into the very existence, into the very essence of human existence and self-awareness. To be human, to exist here, in this life today, demands some sort of explanation to these questions. Some of you have wrestled with these questions. Some of you are wrestling with these questions. And some of you will wrestle with these questions. To be human demands some sort of answer. And we know when we read the scriptures that we're not the first ones to grapple with these questions. One of the ways that we know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul rebukes the Corinthian saints, he calls them saints, but he rebukes them and tells them that they should be united in the same mind and they should not be divided because they were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so their identity who they were, why they were there, what their purpose was, was confused. And so Paul wrote them a letter admonishing them on their division. And so these are questions that all human beings at any time in history has wrestled with. And this morning, I would like to invite us to wrestle with them some more. I would also like to say that I believe that Scripture provides some answers. These are questions that we can find definitive answers to in the Scriptures. Well, good morning. Welcome back to our series on full-brained Christianity. I am so excited to be here with you. In fact, for me, this is my favorite part of the service, um, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to see you. Uh, if you remember, uh, we have been, been talking about joy, and uh, so how, how, how's your joy level this morning? Is it good? High. Good. Good. So in this series, we've been talking about transformation. So we believe that, that transformation, character transformation, should be happening in our lives. And I had to throw this in here, the quote from uh, Leo Tolstoy. 
Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And so this morning, and in this series, we're thinking about changing ourselves. The context of these messages, this series, is that my inner character can and should change. We're not talking about how we're going to change the world. We're not talking about all the problems out there. We're talking about my inner character. A key passage for this series has been Ephesians chapter 4, and I would invite you to, to, to sit on that, to meditate on that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. One of those, this, this passage, I believe, is, is key in this series in that it, is, it, it gives us the idea that all of us can be transformed, and all of us can be equipped for ministry. Paul tells us that there are some apostles, there's some prophets, there's some evangelists, there's shepherds and teachers, and it's their job to equip the saints so that the saints are equipped for ministry, for the building up of the body. And he goes on to say that the saints, they should mature to manhood, to the full measure of, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. And that we are to grow up. And as we do that, that this makes the body to grow so that the body builds itself up in love. And I'd just like to put a little plug in here that this passage and this, this idea, this is a foundational principle of a discipleship model church. We believe that all the saints should have their characters transformed, should continually be having their inner character transformed to be more mature like Christ in order that in order for, for, for ministry that all of us are equipped for ministry. See it's not just the job of the pastor or the deacon or somebody in leadership. It's not just their job to minister, but it's the job of the saints, the body. To minister. And so if you recall, we've been, we've been using some of the content from the book, The Other Half of Church, written by um, Hendricks uh, and, and Wilder, Jim Wilder, and um, I forget Hendricks' first name, what? Michael Hendricks, Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder. And they have... Um, their definition is of character is that character, it's that subconscious, instantaneous reaction to our surroundings. And remember, I've used the example of, of my own experience driving in traffic um, of that, that instantaneous reaction when somebody drives differently than you think that they should, right? Right? Sometimes it's as simple as going five miles an hour slower than you think that they should. And how we respond in those kinds of situations 
that's, that's, our that's who we are. And I've discovered in this study that who I am is not always who I want to be. And so I, I do want to testify on that a little bit. I had an experience, so I, I shared last, in the last message about um, that I hadn't done so well. I, 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 somebody had, in, in that incident, somebody actually, if I understand the law correctly, they violated the law and then honked their horn at me. Um, and I didn't respond very well. I, 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 I got angry, actually, and... and <clears throat> That caused me to reflect on my character. And so I began, uh, here, here's what I did since then. I, I began to, when I got on the road, I would, I would think about what's going to happen. And I would pray, just, you know, okay, God, so how would you relate to these people? How do you see these people? And... I began to think, I, I had a, an incident happen just this past week, just a few days ago, where I was in the left lane and I was coming up behind somebody else. I was going to pass them. Um, I, I was on 31 west of South Bend. And all of a sudden, here on my right side, here comes somebody else. And they cut over in front of me to pass the slower vehicle. And I was a little surprised at my reaction. I, I remember it was one of... Curiosity, really, more like, well, what's going, what's going on in their mind? What, like, where are they going? Because there was more traffic in front of me, and it wasn't like they were really getting ahead of me, you know. They just, there they were in front of me. And, and so, praise the Lord, I, you know, our characters can be transformed. We can consciously think about these things. And one of the ways, we're, we're going to talk about how that happens. So, Hendricks and Wilder have identified four characteristics of things that can, that can create a, they call it a relational soil that, that builds, that can transform our characters. When we have these things in place, um, it is helpful for transforming our character. The first one of those is joy, hence the question, how's your joy level? Is your joy up? Joy is the sparkle in someone's eye that conveys, I am happy to be with you. And when our joy level is high, then we are in a better place to, to respond positively in those situations. The second one that we looked at a few weeks ago is hesed. Remember, this is a Hebrew word for love. Hendricks and Wilder describe it as a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. And this Hebrew word has a little different meaning than the Greek word agape. We often think of agape as meaning uh, sacrificial love, which the way I understand the Greek, I think that's accurate. Hesed has more the idea of attachment or of, of a, a God that supplies our need, a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. Uh, English words that are used to describe it are great love, um, loyal kindness, loving kindness, faithful love, steadfast love. Uh, think of Hesed carries the sense of an enduring connection that brings life 
and all good things into a relationship. Think of an infant and a mother. That would be a Hesed kind of relationship. So it's our brains draw, the, Hendricks and Wilder identify that our brains draw life from our strongest relational attachments. And so if you see the word Hesed, if you see the term in your Bible, great love or steadfast love or loving kindness, that term has a sticky connotation to it. Um, it is a, a attachment type of love or a, a love where the Father is providing for our needs. And so... Our character is shaped and our identity is developed by what we are attached to. Now the thing that Hendricks and Wilder have, have identified is that we don't necessarily automatically attach to the Father. But we will always attach to something. There's always something that we're attempting to draw life from. And it's those things that we are attached to that shape our character and it's those things that our identity that give us our identity and so I'd like to speak a little bit about identity this morning so the, the third thing that Hendricks and Wilder have identified in as creating a healthy soil is they call it strong group identity I've chosen to use the term healthy group identity which is the title of the message healthy group identity so we have joy Hesed and healthy group identity and the reason I chose that is because I believe it's it's possible that you can have a strong group identity that is unhealthy Think of a number of years ago, there was a, a shootout in Waco, Texas between two groups of bikers. Now, those groups of people had strong group identity. It, it just wasn't very healthy. There was a number of people that lost their lives and a number of others that were wounded. Another reason, another, another way to think about this is that one of the reasons why PTSD is so high from veteran, for veterans is because they lose their sense of purpose and sense of identity. See, the military has a strong group identity. But, and so when, when, you, when you leave the military, you lose your sense of value, you lose your sense of purpose, you lose your sense of identity, and many of these people don't know how to respond to that, what to do with themselves. Hence the high PTSD. And so this morning I'd like for us to think a little bit about identity, especially considering our questions and considering culture. You see, Many of us may never have consciously thought about this list of questions. 
However, as I mentioned, all of us deal with these questions one way or another. And every culture provides answers for these questions. Now, no culture has the answers for these questions in a nice bullet-pointed list to where you know, okay, this is how my culture provides answers, and yet it's just assumed that there are things within a culture that if you believe them or do them, that you will find some level of identity, some level of answer to these questions. Let's consider for a moment. Ancient and non-Western cultures are much different than our Western culture, and I'd like to compare the two for a little bit. Ancient slash non-Western cultures are much more communal than Western culture. And so in those types of cultures, if you were asked the question, who are you, your answer would likely revolve around familial connections. Whose son are you, or whose tribe do you belong to? And the way that you earned identity, or the way that you earned honor in those types of culture, is that you laid down your individual agenda, if you will, for the greater good of the community, for the greater good of the tribe, if you will. To violate your family name and bring shame on your tribe was the most dishonorable thing that you could do. The late Tim Keller gives a story of his grandfather growing up in Rome, in Italy, in the late 1800s, and his father was a potter. And the young Keller didn't want to be a potter, and so he suggested that maybe he could do something else. And this wasn't going to work because we're a family of potters. And he, his, his father suggested that he could do one of two things, one of three things. He could be a potter, or he could be a priest, or he could join the military. Those were the options. His mother suggested that, well, maybe he could go to America, which he chose to do. But notice the difference in cultures. So in, in that more ancient familial culture, you would not dishonor your family name. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why it becomes so difficult to share the gospel with Muslims. Because to become a Christian is to dishonor their family name. And that is really, really difficult for somebody from that culture. Now, compare that with our Western culture. Remember several weeks ago, why do most people stop going to church? Does anybody remember? They've moved. Most Americans that have stopped going to church have stopped going to church because they've moved to another town 
for work or school or whatever the reason might be, and they've simply never started attending church again. And these types of people, nons is what they're called, N-O-N-E-S, they don't really consider themselves non-Christians. They don't really consider themselves as having left the church. They just aren't attending church right now. And the reason that they aren't is because they prioritized pursuing their vision, their dream, whatever that might be, at the expense of everything else. I will move to whatever city in the United States for my job. That's the Western way of thinking. And then I will live there for 10 years, and if need be, I will move again for my job. Western culture is very individualistic. Our identity is entirely wrapped up in our accomplishments, job, education, accolades, sports, whatever that might be. It's, it's entirely connected to what I can accomplish, what I can accomplish. We're told that we need to figure out what we want to be. Don't do it to please your dad. Don't do it to please your uncle or your mom or your grandma. What do you want to do? And even more recently, with the rise of the LGBTQ, society is becoming even more accustomed to look inside ourselves to find our truth. The problem with looking inside ourselves is that our own desires are conflicting. If we're really honest with our own desires, we find that often we can have one desire that is at odds with another desire. And so, is there any wonder that depression rates in the United States are skyrocketing, that suicide is on the rise, especially among teens. In a recent survey done by Gallup, currently 29% of U.S. adults report being diagnosed with depression at one point or another. That is up from 19% as recently as 2015. 19% in 2015, 29% in 2023. So, whether ancient slash Mideastern culture, or whether Western culture, the answers provided are still short of a complete answer. And there's really only one way to summarize how these cultures provide answers, and that is they're both crushing. We might find, we might think that this next job, we might think that that promotion that we have achieved, but at the end of the day, when we put our head on our pillow, we're still left wanting, we're still left searching and looking. 
who am I and why am I here and what is my purpose where do I belong and who are my people well there is good news The gospel has answers for these sorts of questions. And if you remember, the gospel simply means good news. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 10. I'd like to read this passage. Starting at verse 1 and reading to verse 15. And remember as we read that these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is telling us how to find answers to these questions. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door to the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now the first thing to think about a little bit, have you ever thought about how often the sheep are used as an analogy in Scripture? If you have not, let's think about that a little bit. That's a little offensive, isn't it? Because think about sheep. Sheep are some of the most stupid animals that exist. They don't know how to take care of themselves. And, I mean, if there's any shepherds here, God bless you. Um, but you can, you can a sheep, if, it, if a sheep is separated from the flock... Often it can't find its way back. Or you can give a sheep good food and it will still go over here and eat the poisonous plant. They, they have, they, they, they're completely helpless. 
cheap. So a couple thoughts in this passage about sheep. The first, the first thought here is that for us, thinking about who we are, thinking about identity, is that we need someone to name us. Remember, we're sheep. We're completely incapable. When we wander away, we can't find our way back. You need someone to name you. The idea that you can find your identity inside of yourself is false. Notice, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before them and the sheep follow them for they know his voice. And so, Jesus has given us an identity. Jesus has named you. We need to receive an identity. We can never achieve our own identity. One of the ways that we know that this is so important is because remember when Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3, after the baptism, the Holy Spirit descends and Jesus said, uh, God the Father says that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Even Jesus needed the blessing or received the blessing from the Father. You need someone to name you. The second thing is only Jesus should name you. There might be other ways. We know that there are other ways that we can receive an identity. We also know from this passage that the thief comes to kill and destroy in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And so anything else other than Jesus that we think might be an identity is only a lie. It will always leave us short. There will always be a time when we realize that we are still searching for meaning in life. The last thing, and the thing that I want to spend the rest of our time on really here, is that Jesus does not do this in some abstract way. And what I mean by that is that Jesus didn't simply speak from heaven and forgive us our sins. Or Jesus didn't simply appear and spend the night in Jerusalem and then was crucified and paid for our sins. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And he is the shepherd. In other words, he's the source of our life. And he lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus spent three years with the disciples. Have you ever considered that? Why three years? Why not just a week? So, 
let's, let's, let's hold that thought for a little bit. Jesus spent time with the disciples. I think that is, that is really important for us to understand, for us to find answers to these questions. I'd like to talk a little bit about other identity statements in the Scriptures and help, help us think about how our mind thinks about these things. So there's numerous identity statements in the New Testament. Jesus calls us friends. Paul calls us sons and daughters. John calls us children of light. In Ephesians, Paul calls us a masterpiece. To the Corinthians, a new creation, or a, the temple of the Holy Spirit. He calls us blameless. We're chosen. And so, we have all this information, right? We know who we are. We have that information. If we know all those things, then why does the depression rate keeps skyrocketing. Why is the Western church in decline? Why is teen suicide skyrocketing? When we have more information than ever. Let me propose something to you. And that is that the answers to these questions, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where do I belong? Who are my people? The answer to those questions is only found in the context of the ecclesia, of the body, of the church. It's only found in the context of relationship. Remember, we're created in the Imago Dei. We are intended for relationship. Remember Jesus praying for us in the garden that we love in the same way that the Trinity has loved. You see, for me to simply read some of these identity statements, that's good. But if it's done outside of the context of the body, it does not do much to actually transform my character. I have the information, but in order for it to really transform my character, it has to be done, it has to be known in the context of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the chosen ones. And so remember, we are the called out ones, the chosen ones. Paul says to the Ephesians that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and we are members of the household of God. That's what the ecclesia is. To the Colossians he says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so... What I want us to think about this morning is that we have been about that. How should we act here? What should I wear? Those kinds of things. This is your answer. 
look at your leaders. And I'm going to be a little bold, I guess, and say that I believe that as a pastor, that this is a part of the call. You know, from time to time you hear the comment, you know, as a pastor or a leader, you live in a glass house because, you know, everybody sees what you're doing and all. That's a part of the call. It is my responsibility to live my life in such a way that it is an example. That is the discipleship model of doing church. Is that we provide examples for others to follow. And by the way, these passages, it's not just the pastors. Remember Ephesians chapter 4? All of the saints are to be equipped for ministry. Uh, remember uh, Philippians, you know, be imitators of others who are walking in the way of Christ. So, find who, who finds all of us should have someone that we are imitating, a mentor, or somebody that is discipling us, somebody that we follow after. We should also be providing an example for someone else. We should also be looking for a younger person or maybe a peer or somebody that, that we can walk along with because character transformation happens in the context of the body. It happens when the orbital prefrontal context, cortex, I think I said that right, at BCF, we are a people who love fellowshipping with each other. We think this is very, very important that we spend